Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Our scripture reading today is taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, and we read the verses 1 through 14. Let us hear the word of God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures." and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Deny this doctrine, and the whole Christian faith would collapse like a house of cards. The Apostle Paul understood this. We just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in this chapter, the Apostle defends the doctrine of the resurrection. And he does so because there were apparently some in the congregation of Corinth who denied this doctrine. They simply could not understand how anyone could rise from the dead. But Paul rebukes them for this. And he points out in verse 13 that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then he says, our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty. And we are still in our sins. What is more, he says, we, that is the apostles, are found false witnesses of God, or liars, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. But this raises the question, how do we know for certain that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead? Is this simply a matter we have to accept by faith? Or is there evidence to prove this? 
Can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Christ actually physically rose from the dead? Well, the answer to that question, I believe, is yes. We can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ actually physically rose from the dead. Now, maybe somebody says, well, does that really matter? Who cares whether we can prove this? Isn't it more important just to believe it as as a matter of faith? Well, to be sure, believing in the resurrection of Christ is important. In fact, if we don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, we cannot be saved. The doctrine of the resurrection is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. But the Bible also calls us, as Peter says, always to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that means if a man on the street were to come up to you and ask you why you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you should be able to answer him. And if you can't do that, then he won't take you or Christianity very seriously at all. He'll simply dismiss you and all Christians as hopelessly deluded, followers of cunningly devised fables, and nothing more. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to try to prove to you today that Jesus Christ rose from the dead using only the testimony of Holy Scripture. And as I do, I want you to pretend that I am a lawyer and you are the jury. And I'll presenting the evidence and you will be passing the verdict. Either Christ rose from the dead or he did not. So the theme for the sermon today is the case for the resurrection of Christ. And we'll consider four lines of evidence or exhibits. The first exhibit, Exhibit A, is the empty tomb. Exhibit B is the discarded grave clothes. Exhibit C are the appearances of Jesus. And Exhibit D, the transformation of the disciples. Let's begin then with Exhibit A, the empty tomb. The Gospels inform us that when the women arrived at the tomb of Jesus early on the first day of the week, they entered in and discovered that the body of Jesus was not there. The tomb was empty. Now, in an effort to explain this, some have argued that the women went to the wrong tomb. After all, it is said it was still dark and they were overwhelmed with sorrow. Consequently, they made a mistake. There were many tombs in the garden and the women simply went to the wrong tomb. They went to a tomb that was empty. But is that plausible? Well, I submit to you it isn't. For one thing, it cannot have been completely dark. It's true that John says the women came while it was still dark. But in Matthew 28, verse 1, we read that they came at dawn. Luke says it was very early in the morning. Mark distinctly states that it was just after sunrise. Furthermore, these women weren't fools. At least two of them had seen for themselves the exact location where Joseph and Nicodemus had laid the body of Jesus only three days earlier. What is more, several women went to the tomb that morning. It's hardly likely that they were all mistaken as to the location of the tomb. Well, others, in an attempt to explain the empty tomb, have said that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. He merely slipped into a coma. He then revived in the cold, damp tomb, 
and later made himself known to the disciples. But that theory also does not stand up under scrutiny. Consider this fact. Would the centurion, who as a soldier in the Roman army, knew very well what death looked like when he saw it? Would he, at the risk of his own position and his own reputation, have certified to Pontius Pilate that Jesus was dead, if, in fact, he was only in a coma? Besides that, could Jesus have survived a javelin being plunged into his side? And if Jesus did not die, how do we explain that after the soldier plunged his javelin into his side, that out, according to John's Gospel, came blood and water, which is a sure sign of death? And when Joseph and Nicodemus took down his body from the cross and wrapped it in strips of linen and laid it in Joseph's tomb, would they not have realized that Jesus was still alive? Would they not have noticed him breathing, however shallowly, and felt the warmth of his body? And are we seriously to believe that after the rigors and pains of his trial, his flogging and his crucifixion, that Jesus could survive 36 hours in a stone-cold tomb without medical care, and that he could then rally sufficiently to move the large stone that was in front of the entrance to the tomb and to do so without disturbing the Roman guard, and that then, weak and sickly and hungry, he could appear to the disciples in such a way as to give them the impression that he had vanquished death, the very idea is preposterous. Thirdly, it's been argued that the disciples removed the body so that they could claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, you, re you may remember that this is what the religious leaders of the Jews were afraid might happen. And this is why Pilate sent some soldiers to secure the tomb and to seal it. But this too seems unlikely. For one thing, how would they have gotten past the guard? And if they did steal the body of Jesus, why would Peter stand up on the day of Pentecost only 50 days later in front of thousands of people and assert that Jesus had risen from the dead? Are we to believe that he deliberately proclaimed a lie? And if so, on what basis would we make such an accusation? And how do we explain the fact that the disciples were prepared to suffer and even to die for this very truth? Men, generally speaking, do not suffer and die for something that they know to be a lie. The fourth and perhaps the least unreasonable, though still hypothetical, explanation of the disappearance of Christ's body is that the Jewish authorities took it. Now, they would certainly have had a sufficient motive for doing so. They had heard that Jesus had talked about being raised from the dead, and they were afraid that his disciples might make this claim and thus deceive many, as they themselves said. And so the theory goes, the Jewish leaders took the body of Jesus, so that if many came to believe the disciples, they could produce the body and refute their claim. But if that is what happened, why didn't they do that? Instead, they responded with the to the disciples' claims with threats and violence and intimidation. And we can read about that in the book of Acts. But all this was entirely unnecessary 
if they had in their own possession the dead body of Jesus. And besides, if they were going to steal the body of Jesus, why would they bother asking Pilate for a guard? That would be just a waste of time. Well, these are the theories which have been invented to try to explain the emptiness of the tomb. But as we've seen, none of them is satisfactory. None of them can be backed up by any evidence whatsoever. None of them are even reasonable. And that leaves us with only one possible conclusion. Jesus must have risen from the dead. Now, the second line of evidence to prove the resurrection of Christ is the discarded grave clothes. We can call this Exhibit B. John, in his gospel, in chapter 20, informs us that after Mary Magdalene told Peter and John that the body of Jesus was gone, that these two disciples ran immediately to the tomb of Jesus. When they arrived, they saw that indeed the body of Jesus was gone. But what convinced especially John that Jesus had risen from the dead was not the fact that Jesus' body was not there. It was the grave clothes. And John tells us about this in John 20, verses 4 to 8. And there we read that John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that is John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. Now, in New Testament times, the Jews wrapped the bodies of their loved ones in strips of cloth and various sweet-smelling spices. Following that, they wrapped the head with a separate cloth, leaving the face and neck exposed. Then they placed the corpse on a ledge that had been chiseled out of one of the walls of the tomb. And this was also the case with Jesus. Now, what convinced John that Jesus had risen from the dead was really two things. First of all, that the grave cloths had been removed. And secondly, the head cloth was lying folded in a place by itself. To John, the body of Jesus could not have been stolen. For why would the thieves take the time to unwrap the grave clothes and fold up the head cloth, especially with Roman soldiers on guard outside the tomb? For that matter, as we've seen, how would they even manage to get past the guard? There's only one possible explanation for this. Jesus had risen from the dead. The third line of evidence to prove the resurrection of Christ is the, appearance of, the appearances of Jesus, and we can call this Exhibit C. Jesus appeared no less than ten times after his resurrection, once to over 500 people at the same time. He also appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, suggesting that there may well have been other appearances of which no record has survived. So to sum up, Jesus was seen by hundreds of people, some more than once, over a period of several weeks. 
Now, no one can lightly dismiss the testimony of so many witnesses. The only way you could do so is if you made one of three claims. First of all, you'd have to say that these appearances were inventions, stories made up by those who claimed to have seen him. But there's no evidence to substantiate that. Secondly, in order to dismiss the witness, the testimony of these witnesses, you would have to say that these appearances were hallucinations. Now, a hallucination is seeing something that doesn't exist. It's commonly associated with people who are suffering from some kind of mental illness. The idea is that those who saw the Lord Jesus were merely hallucinating. They imagined that they saw him when, in fact, they did not. But how likely is that? It may be possible to argue that this was true of one or two, for example, Mary Magdalene, who didn't even recognize him. But certainly not all of them, including the 500 who saw him at the same time. Besides, there's no evidence at all to suggest that any of the people who saw Jesus were mentally ill. In fact, when you read the gospel accounts, they appear to us to be perfectly rational and in their right mind. It's utterly unreasonable, therefore, to dismiss these appearances of Jesus as hallucinations being experienced by people with disturbed minds. So if they were neither inventions nor hallucinations, the only alternative left is that this actually happened. Christ, indeed, had risen from the dead. Now there's one more strand of evidence to prove this, and this is the transformation of the disciples. We could call this Exhibit D. This is perhaps the most compelling proof of the resurrection of Christ because it's entirely uncontrived. After Jesus died, the disciples were despondent, disillusioned, and near to despair. But after he appeared to them, they were completely transformed. They were joyful and excited. Now, how do we explain this? There's only one possible explanation. They had seen the risen Christ. Take Peter as an example. The night that Jesus was betrayed, our Lord predicted that before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him three times. Peter swore that he would never do such a thing. He would sooner die than deny the Lord. But only a few hours later, everything that Jesus said came to pass. Before the rooster crowed, Peter denied him three times, the last time with cursing and swearing, after which he went out of the house of Caiaphas and wept bitterly. But when we come to the book of Acts, we see a very different Peter. We see Peter preaching to thousands of people on the day of Pentecost, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah and urging the Jews to repent and believe the gospel. Later on, we see him standing before the Sanhedrin, the very Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus to death just a few weeks earlier. And they commanded him to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But Peter refused, and he boldly declared, we must obey God rather than men. Peter was a new man. He was true to the meaning of his nickname, Peter, which means a rock. Now, how do we explain this? There's only one possible explanation. He had seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. Or take James, the brother of our Lord. During our Lord's ministry, James, together with Jesus, other brothers, did not believe in him. But in Acts chapter 1, we read that after our Lord's ascension into heaven, 
James was present with his mother Mary and the disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem, awaiting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Later on, he went on to become a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. How do we explain this? There's only one possible explanation. He had seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Paul specifically mentions that Jesus appeared to James. Or take the Apostle Paul. Before his conversion to Christ, Paul was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the church of Christ. He even secured permission from the Sanhedrin to go all the way to Damascus and arrest anyone who confessed Christ and bring them to Jerusalem for trial. But a few chapters later, we find him in the synagogue, openly proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the same Jesus that he had persecuted. He now proclaims as being the Savior, much to the astonishment of the believers there. And later we find him traveling all across the Roman Empire, planting churches, writing letters, risking his neck for the cause of the gospel, and eventually suffering a martyr's death. How do we explain this? Again, there's only one possible explanation. He had seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and it changed his life completely. From an enemy of Christ, he became one of his most faithful and devoted followers. Well, these are the strands of the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. The empty tomb, the discarded grave clothes, the appearances of Christ, and the transformation of the disciples. Now let me ask you, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters of the jury, what is your verdict? Did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? Well, I submit to you that the evidence that has been presented is clear and irrefutable. He most certainly did. And only a fool would deny this. Now that means at least two things, depending on your spiritual condition before God. First of all, if you're not saved, it means you need to become saved. Why? Because one day you will die. And then you will have to appear before this risen Christ, seated on his throne of judgment. And if you're not saved, he will condemn you to an everlasting perdition in hell. And there you will remain to all eternity in that place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so stop being so foolish and stiff-necked and rebellious. Repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the testimony of his word that he has risen from the dead and do so today while there is still time and you are still in the day of grace. But if you are saved, it means you are a partaker of immeasurable comfort. Now, what is this comfort? Well, first of all, the fact that Christ rose from the dead means that the Father was satisfied with his atoning work. And because he was satisfied, we have nothing to fear, nor do we have to add anything to his atoning work. It has all been done by Christ. Christ's sacrifice is all that we need to be saved. We can rest wholly and completely in him. Secondly, the fact that Christ rose from the dead means that we who believe in him are raised to newness of life. 
Romans chapter 6, Paul says that when Christ rose, we rose with him. Not actually, but spiritually. We rose to newness of life. And by virtue of our union with him, our old man is crucified. The dominion and power of sin is broken in our lives. And we are set free to serve the Lord and to walk in holiness before him all the days of our life. Thirdly, the fact that Christ rose from the dead means that one day, we too who believe in him will also rise from the dead. No, death will not have the final say. Death is a conquered enemy. And we who believe in Christ will live to all eternity. Oh, how thankful we should be for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Had Christ not risen from the dead, none of these benefits could become ours. We would still be without hope in the world, heading to an everlasting damnation in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ is risen from the dead. And that's not just some cunningly devised fable. It is the truth, and it can be proven. Well, what about you, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? I have labored today to prove to you that Christ has risen from the dead. Now I rest my case, and I ask you, what is your verdict? Do you believe that Christ rose from the dead? Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the Word of God every Sunday on this station. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Please consider writing a short note expressing your thoughts about our program. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, v 4 x 2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. And please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we will gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Prunk, the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. And we hope that it may be a rich blessing to you. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. If you would like to listen to the message you have just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.com. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X, 
2M9. Or you can visit the donations section of our webpage. Our webpage again is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. And for that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing member of a faithful, Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.